This morning we're going to look at the letter to the final church, the church at Laodicea. So I'm going to ask if we could put that map up there. If, if, if you remember, we said that the book of Revelation was written to a, a series of churches in an area called Asia Minor. There were seven of them that the Lord selected. Now, these seven churches are just in God's sovereignty through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The, the seven churches that he selected to sort of be a template for all of us. The Bible says all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and training and righteousness. And so the things that the Lord says to these seven churches are things that could be applied to any church and any one of us as individuals. So as we come to this last church, I want to remind you that one of the things that it's important to see is that the Lord Jesus in this section says, look, I'm walking among the churches and as a faithful friend, he's giving advice. He's saying, this is what you're doing well. Um, kind of like the proverbial, this is what you're doing, but this is what you should be doing. So he'll often give them correction and warning. And in fact, to almost all of these seven churches, he tells them that they need to repent. And sometimes repentance can sort of be a scary term, like repent. I remember reading years ago, J.I. Packer made an interesting observation about repentance. He said, repentance is the ongoing privilege of the Christian. I never forgot that. What a unique way to think of repentance. It's the ongoing privilege of the Christian. Because as, as you know, as you've been exploring Christianity, most people, there's two types of sinners, religious sinners and non-religious sinners. Non-religious sinners could care less about God. Religious sinners are the ones who Burger King their, their religion so that they're gonna do it their way. They're gonna earn their salvation by their good works. But neither one of them in scripture will get you to heaven. Religious or non-religious sinners don't go to heaven. It's sinners who repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and rely on the gospel of his grace. But when you do that, you both repent in that willingness to turn from sin and you trust in Christ alone. And if you've never done that, I wanna urge you, maybe you're from a background where you're told you have to be good, you have to earn it, did I do enough? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Jesus did enough. He hung on the cross and he finished it. He said, it's finished, he paid for it. And he invites you to trust him alone, to give your life to Christ, to be willing to follow him and receive that gift. And you don't even need to know when you did that, but you just need to know that you're willing and that you have done that. But if you say that you have become a Christ follower, we call that a disciple, advance the gospel and then make disciples. A disciple is someone who has stepped forward and said, yes, I confess that I have made Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. I have received his gift. I am trusting him and my life has been changed. And then you should be baptized, not to get to heaven, but Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them. You make that profession. But once a person makes that profession in their ongoing Christian life, we experience a life of change and transformation. So don't get the impression that the moment you become a Christian, you just soar in glory to be this great Superman Christian on fire for the Lord every day. If you happened to be here yesterday, I felt as though we were standing on holy ground because we celebrated the life of Harmon Johnson. And while I knew him some, I did not realize what a profoundly godly, holy, committed, passionate man he was. And as, as we talked about his life, 
I was just so like, wow, this guy, he, he was exemplary. He, was, he lived his life on fire for the Lord and the fruit of his family and laborers. It was so touching. So he would be the type of person you say, hey, I want to be like him. As we engage this last church, the church at Laodicea, right down in that little area, Laodicea, were two other places, Hierapolis and Colossae. Now, we have the letter to the church of Colossae. We have the book of Colossians, and we don't know much about Hierapolis, but in the book of Colossians, Paul goes, be sure to read my letter to the Laodiceans. That's not in the Bible. So we don't have that, but we do know a lot about the area of Laodicea. We know that it was a very wealthy area, and, and their wealth came from three sources. One of them was they had a, a, a um, type of sheep that had a glossy black soft wool. Like most people don't like wool, but when it's soft, shiny black, so they made a lot of wealth. They also were, they had a banking industry. Um, I've been told that Bermuda, a lot of Bermuda is, um, is banking. So they made a lot of money in banking. Third, people were having eye problems and they had come up with a, a treatment for a common eye disease. So they had a salve that they were the manufacturers. They were the pharmaceutical company that had this special eye salve that people used to treat their, their eye, whatever this eye disease was. Now, in light of that, there was such opulence and wealth that a historical setting that sort of shows you how wealthy they were is recorded in history. In around 60 AD, there was a great earthquake in that area that kind of destroyed the town. Normally, when an earthquake destroyed a town, the Roman government would give subsidy. They would help out. They would, kind of like we do, declare a national disaster and send funds there. They prided themselves that they had enough wealth that they didn't need any subsidy. They were able to rebuild their city with their own wealth. And so that sort of became a, a, a point of, you know, look at us. So in the midst of all that, the Lord Jesus brings the gospel to this community and people become believers. We don't know who started the church. It probably wasn't Paul because he said he'd never been to Colossae. It might have been a man named Epaphras who started the church at Colossae. So this fellowship, and maybe there's a few little home churches. I don't gather that this was a huge, you know, 7,000 people Colosseum of Christians, but these Christians in this community had heard the gospel and were gathering together, made professions of faith, but as Jesus was observing them, there were some things that deeply concerned him about them. And, and, and we just read them, but we're going to walk back through them. As he observed them, he noticed that they were quite content with their wealth. But in the background of that, one of the things that is perhaps worth reflecting on is in order to become wealthy in that setting, you had to identify yourself with the trade guilds, right? You couldn't just be an entrepreneur disengaged from everybody else. But all of the guilds, whether it was the sheep or the, the banking or the ISAV, all of them had history of gathering for other things besides just talking business. So there, there was almost a cultic... Um, sense that in order to 
be part of that, you had to worship the gods of these, these guilds. You had to become a part of the world. You had to compromise your Christian convictions because one of the greatest dangers of these churches is when they made a stand and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go to that temple. We're not going to worship this deity and we're not going to bow down to Caesar is that they began to be persecuted. And it wasn't just physical persecution. It was often financial persecution. And a lot of people, like even in America, who call themselves Christians, if they were told, if you keep calling yourself a Christian, you're going to lose your job, they would say, who said I'm a Christian? So one of the things that kind of sets the background is apparently these people had, though they professed to know Christ, had completely compromised their Christianity in such a way that they were going along as chameleons in the crowd, not willing to come out from among the world and be separate, not willing to take a stand, not willing to suffer for their faith, not willing to boldly witness to their friends and neighbors and people in their guilds because, hey, that would affect my pocketbook. So the reality is they had a very misperceived idea of how the Lord viewed them. Their perception was, if I'm wealthy, the Lord must be pleased with me. In fact, perhaps it would be almost like what we would call the prosperity gospel. The Lord wants everyone to be wealthy. Now, that's not completely, that's not the stupidest idea you ever heard of, because in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic law, the Lord did promise to bless and prosper those who are obedient. But as Jesus brought the gospel to this earth, there was no sense in which he brought this message. If you're a good, committed Christian, you're going to be wealthy and prosperous. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He said, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. He called us all to be willing to leave any possessions that become our idols. And so they had this distorted view. I'm rich. God must be really pleased with me. But meanwhile, the Lord's gone, it doesn't look like you're praying. You're not sharing your faith. You're compromising and worshiping these idols. You're probably acting immoral and not making any stand against the evils that are going on in your community. So my diagnosis of you is very different from you, what, what you think your condition is. Now, what we call this is um, deceiving ourselves. And this is a very scary idea in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says this. It says, Be careful lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God because of the deceitfulness of sin. James chapter 1 says this. If you hear the word of God but you don't do it, you're deceiving yourself. He later says, if you think you're religious, you can't even bridle your tongue, you're deceived. And so these people actually thought that they were really good Christians and that the Lord was pleased with them. And then the Lord shows up and he says, can I give you my opinion? But what I want you to see here is the tenderness of Jesus. Jesus is very sweet to these folks. He's, he's precious. I'm reading a book right now I, I believe it's called, Keith, am I right? Gentle and Lowly? Gentle and Lowly by a man named Dane Ortland. Um, I know a number of you have read it. I think I first heard uh, Chuck Sutton was reading it, and, and a pastor sent me a copy of it. It's really good, just on the tender heart of Jesus. So let's, let's, let's see what Jesus has to say to this church and what he has to say to us. So we're just going to walk through this. Now, quickly remember this. He identifies himself with some titles that relates to 
uh, this church that goes back to chapter one. Then he gives them his commendations or corrections and then final advice and a promise to those who heed. So let's start in verse 14. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, normally we pray, but Benjamin already did. He says, write this. Now notice his, his description of himself. The amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, just a couple comments here. Why would Jesus call himself the amen? Normally what amen is, is a statement you make after somebody says something, which means something like, let it be true. Amen has to do with true. Literally in Greek, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he's going, amen, amen, I say to you. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, when someone gives thanks, we say amen. So typically you say amen after a statement. Jesus goes, I am the amen. And that goes back to a passage in Isaiah 65, because in the Hebrew Old Testament, it says, God who is, 65, 16 says, he who is blessed in the earth will be by, blessed by the God of amen. He swears by the God of amen. But interestingly, that passage in Isaiah that talks about the God of amen, it goes on to say this, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. So the amen God of Isaiah is, is, is going to make a new creation. Don't miss that. Because after Jesus says, I am the amen, he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. In other words, unlike you folks in Laodicea who will not stand up like I did against Pilate and witnessed to the truth and died for it, I am the faithful and true witness. And then he says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the Bible says that false teachers twist scripture to their own destruction. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by God, and they twist verses to, to distort the Bible. Second Peter 3 says they will do this. This would be one of the verses. They go, look, he's the beginning of the creation of God, meaning God created him. They use a verse in Colossians 1, same thing. So they go, look, John 3.16 says, Jesus is God's only begotten son. Begotten must mean he created him. Therefore, God created Jesus, and Jesus created everything else. And, and I want to tell you the truth. That's damnable heresy. And I, and, and I say that soberly. To deny the deity of Jesus is to not be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and, 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 and deny the deity, the eternal deity of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. John said in John 20, I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Believing this, you have life in his name. So what it doesn't mean here is he's the first one God created. But rather, the word arche can mean beginning, but it can also mean ruler. And ironically, what I think he's saying here is not go back in history. I, um, I created everything. I think he's saying I am the beginning of this new creation of God. Because when we come to Revelation 21 later, he's going to tell us, behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And you say, well, how do you know that's a connection? Because in Isaiah 65, when God calls himself amen, he also says, I'm going to make a new creation. So here's Jesus coming to this church and saying, look, I'm the true one. I was a witness. I'm making a new creation. And by the way, 
you're a part of it, but you're not acting like it. Remember, when you become a Christian, the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, right? We're part of this new creation that's headed for a new heaven and new earth. So let's look at his diagnosis. Well, Jesus, what are they doing well? Nothing. At least some of the churches, he goes, I know you're working hard. I know you're doing this. Nothing. Verse 15, I know your deeds. Somebody once said this. I don't need, it's a Japanese proverb. I don't need to, you tell me what you believe. Let me live with you for three days and I'll tell you what you believe. Because you just, you just look at how someone lives. Because our deeds reflect what we believe. So apparently, as Jesus looked at them, they weren't, they weren't praying, they weren't witnessing, they weren't trying to turn from sin, they weren't actively building one another up in the Lord. I'm assuming they were still gathering, although maybe there was a pandemic and they didn't feel comfortable, so they, so they weren't even gathering. I don't know, and I, and I don't mean that in a, like a jab. I'm just saying it's a reality that there are some people that all they have in their Christianity is a profession. But if you put them on trial, there would be no evidence, right? So he says, I know your deeds. You're neither cold or hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, just a quick historical background. This is interesting. In that area, Colossae had the, the, uh, an area where there was a very cold stream where they got their water. But in order to get water to Laodicea, it had to go across a warm plain. So by the time it got to Laodicea, their water, literally, in Laodicea was undrinkable. It was that temperature that just gagged you, right? So there's a background here when he says you're lukewarm. But the interesting thing is you would expect him to say, I don't like you to be lukewarm, but it's weird for him to say, I wish you were cold or hot. And I'm going, Jesus, why would you want Christians to be cold? Like either want them hot or not at all. Some have suggested that cold would be refreshing, like when Jesus offers living water. So when he says, I wish you were cold, I wish you were offering that life-giving water to others. Hot would then be, I wish you were on fire for the Lord. But lukewarm, you've got nothing to offer to anybody. And then he tells them why he's feeling this way and what it means to be lukewarm. Look at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy. Now, to me, the next phrase is the most telling. I have need of nothing. I have need of nothing. One of the heart and soul marks of a Christian who's living for Christ is an understanding of just how deeply we need Jesus every day, right? But functionally, we don't always live that way. If I asked you, how many of you believe we need Jesus every day? We'd all raise our hand, right? If Benjamin put up a song, this is the air I breathe, we'd all sing, and I, I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for you, God. But the word desperate is a word that we should reserve for when your older brother is holding you underwater. 
and you can't breathe. That's what desperate feels like. So sometimes I'll say to people, how many you believe you need the Lord every day? Oh, we all do. How often do you pray? Well, you know, if I get it, you know, maybe a couple minutes, if I, every, 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 honestly, I haven't prayed for a week. I'm going, well, then do you, do you really believe that you desperately need the Lord? If you don't even pray, you're like, well, well what do I need him for? Like he says, pray for your daily bread. That's a joke. Like I got more bread in my, my uh, house than I could feed an army for a month, right? What do I need him for? I can get up out of bed. I'm healthy. I'm fine. But what we don't realize is how deeply we need him spiritually. Like, like how often does the devil prowl about like a roaring lion, deceiving and coming against us spiritually? And if we're not in prayer, he's just having a heyday with us. And there's so many spiritual battles going on around us that, that we need to deeply engage in, but we're going, but no, I'm, I'm fine, I'm, I'm doing well. So sometimes there's nothing wrong here with being wealthy, but the danger of being wealthy, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm gonna use that term in American culture for the most part, a large part of Americans are wealthy when you consider the rest of the world. Wealthy doesn't mean you have you know, three vacation homes. But, but we, we got plenty. And the danger of affluence, and I'm, I'm pointing at myself, is the danger of affluence is to become spiritually indifferent, right? There's no persecution. We're in the land of opportunity, and we just kind of blend in. I'm not going to say anything at work. I just witness by my life. So here they are, lukewarm Christians, thinking that they're fine. And Jesus says, well, here's, here's my evaluation. Do you not understand that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Remember the emperor has no clothes? Like, wait, what? How harsh. But it's not really harsh because Jesus goes on in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove. He could have said, I'm coming with wrath on you. But look what he says in verse 18. I advise you, how tender of Jesus, how precious of Jesus to say to his dear children, listen, I love you. I'm not angry at you, but I reprove you because I love you. And I have some advice for you. He doesn't ram it down their throats. He says, here's my advice. Number one, he says, I want you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. Now the irony of him saying buy from me is like, wait, so I have, I have to pay my way back to you? And I think we're missing the whole point. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says, Ho, everyone that is thirsty, come to the waters. Come and buy, right? And then he says, freely. So the imagery of coming to buy from me gold, Jesus isn't going to go, what are you going to do to earn it? It's kind of this play on words that's like, buy from me something that's free. Well, what's he have? He says, gold refined by fire. Well, why do I need gold? I'm rich. He goes, you have earthly riches, but you're spiritually bankrupt. So the gold, the idea of being refined, I think, is he's saying, come back to me and let me refine you and purify you from all of the stains of the world that have caused you to, to, to be corrupt in my sight. To, the pollution that has invaded you and and this doesn't mean they're necessarily not Christians, but they're just 
they're in sin. And he goes, I, I want you to, to buy gold. In other words, come and let me, let me purify you. Secondly, he says, buy from me white garments. Now again, two possibilities. One is, let me wash you, right? Because your garments are stained from the way you're living. Or you're not saved. And you need to, you need to accept the robe of righteousness. In other words, Paul said, when I die, Philippians 3, he goes, I don't want to be found having my righteousness. I want the righteousness of God that comes from Christ. Jesus told a parable like this. He said a bunch of people showed up in a party, but if you had the wrong suit on, you couldn't come in. If you want to get to heaven, you better have the robe of Christ's righteousness around you. You better be trusting and relying completely on him. So either he's saying to these Christians, you have soiled your garments in sin, or you're not a Christian, and you need to put your faith and trust wholly in Christ and beg him to clothe you with his righteousness. I read somewhere that the Chinese symbol for righteousness in Mandarin orange, Mandarin oranges, yes, see? <laughs> Why do I try to go outside my league? I need to stay in my league. In Mandarin is a symbol of the, the personal pronoun I with a lamb above it. That's the word for righteousness. So picture, picture Christ being your righteousness. So he says, buy for me white garments. In other words, let me cleanse you. And then, and then he says, and, and, and buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes. In other words, you really aren't seeing well. In fact, Peter uses this word in 2 Peter 1. He says, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't have any godliness, desire for knowledge, perseverance, holiness, brotherly love, he says, you've become blind or short-sighted. Like, you don't get it. You can't see anymore. You're spiritually deceiving yourself. And so he's, he's saying to them, come back to me, my children, and let my Holy Spirit begin to open your eyes again. And I'll tell you where he's going to do it, through this book. The entrance of thy word gives light. The word of God not only corrects us, but then it trains us in righteousness. It shows us the area. And I have to confess as I'm reading that, even as I sat in Har at Harmon's funeral yesterday, and, and I hear his kids say, I never heard a crossword between my mother and father. I'm just shrinking down, going, take me now, Lord. I'm a spiritual pygmy, right? So rather than us go, well, this is just talking about them dirty sinners who, who um, shoot heroin and don't come to church, I'm going, well, this might be talking about us. There's definitely applications for me. Lord, open my eyes. So Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So he's not saying here, all right, let's put our hands in. Let's just go out and be on fire. I love what John Stott has a beautiful little book called What Christ Thinks of the Churches. But he has a quote here. He says, commitment without reflection is fanaticism in action. In other words, if we're going to be, let's be on fire for Christ. He goes, well, hang on, let's think a little bit. But then he says, Reflection without commitment is paralysis of action. So having heard the assessment and the Holy Spirit presses home to each of us, here's where you might be lukewarm. What do we do? Here, here's the invitation. We stop and reflect. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? He's knocking. Now, it has often been understood that this is an invitation to unbelievers, and it could be. But I honestly think this is talking to Christians. He says to them, those whom I love, these are his dearly beloved children. 
So, so first of all, I think he's saying to Christians, if you have Fred Flintstone Jesus, remember the beginning of Fred Flintstone, uh, the Flintstones, when, when he puts Dino out, the dog, but then when he gets in the door, Dino puts him out and closes the door, and he's out banging on the door. Subtly, sometimes, we sort of push Jesus to the side of our lives so that he's no longer the center of our lives. Anybody else feel that way beside me? Or am I up here the only, only person that does that? I don't wake up every morning going, oh, Lord Jesus, I fix my eyes on you. I set my affection on things above. This is a, a, a battle of idolatry in our hearts with the gospel. But Jesus is saying, let me come back to that place of lordship in your life. It sounds very much like Ephesians 3 when he said, I pray that Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. They were already Christians. So I think he's saying, based on reflection, am I the center and Lord of your life where you're living for me, where, where every day you're, you're, you're in my word, you're praying, you're serving me, or have you pushed me to the side for whatever reason in all of the helter and skelter of life and suddenly you're just lukewarm? And if, in fact, you say to yourself, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I don't, you know, if I die, I have no idea whether I'd go to heaven. I don't know if I'm good enough. Jesus is, is, is inviting you. Believe in me. And, and trust in me. Receive me as your Lord and Savior. And I give you, I grant you eternal life. You, you understand what it means to open the door, right? There's nothing confusing about that. It's a, it's a, it's a welcoming of Christ into your life. So you can either keep the door shut or you can welcome Christ in. And, and I sense this morning, maybe there's someone here that needs to do that. You know exactly what I'm talking to. God's speaking to your heart. Maybe you grew up in church or you, this is your first time here. But you get it. Jesus is saying, I love you. I died for you. I want to forgive you. Now, will you receive me into your life by faith? I know that's a scary thing. And I don't want to, I don't want you to do this without your own decision. But if, you, if you're not sure, why not say to Jesus, Jesus, today I, I, I truly want you to come in. Forgive me. Clothe me. Become my Lord and Savior. Change me so that I can follow you. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast out. So don't fight him. Don't slam the door. Don't resist. Welcome him in. And then he gives a promise. I will come in and dine with you. And there's going to be a relationship. Meals are fun together. You don't eat meals with your enemies. To dine with Jesus, to enjoy his company, his presence, his fellowship, not just with him, but with other like-minded believers. That's the sweetness of the Christian life. That's the taste of heaven. One day we'll sit down with him in the kingdom of God, but we don't have to wait to then. We already can enjoy fellowship with Jesus. And then he says, if you overcome, you'll sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with my father. Well, how did he overcome? He overcame by dying. He overcame by, by being willing to obey God in the midst of a difficult scenario. My brothers and sisters, pray for me and I pray for you that we all, not one of us, will fall back. Jesus said, of all those God you have given me, I lost none of them, that each one of us would persevere and overcome and not renounce and go back 
and just give up. But trust in Jesus, surrender to him, and let him carry us through until the nets are full and the trumpet sounds. Amen? Let's pray. If you're one of those ones that Christ has spoken to today, you know he's knocking at your heart and you want to welcome him in. I don't always do this, but I just want to pray for you. If you do want to talk to someone and welcome Christ in your life, would you just raise your hand and let me see you with no one else looking around? Is there anybody who says, I really want to, to let Christ into my life? I won't labor this. It's just an opportunity for someone to say, I'd like to talk to someone. Anybody at all? If you change your mind, we're here. You can email or call us. But there's always that opportunity to begin a relationship with Jesus. Father, thank you for our time. May we as the American church, as Riverstone Church, repent of our lukewarmness in whatever areas we need to change. Thank you for your mercy. Anoint our eyes, Lord. Clothe us afresh with clean garments. Help us to turn from our lukewarmness. Help us to realize what's important and change our values and our pursuits. And I thank you for your tender mercy. Thank you, Lord, for how graciously you deal with us as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and encourage your hearts today.